Hello, and welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jana Hill. And today we're living the coastal life of sun, fun, and imminent danger with Hawkeye Part 2. Excelsior. Hell yeah. Yeah. For those of you who are just joining us, well, now, last time we looked at the first half of Hawkeye by uh, Matt Fraction and David Aha, uh, among a few other creators. Uh, and now we're back for the second half when things get a little less linear. Yeah. It's splitting them up this way has been interesting because kind of this is how they were actually split up. Like it, there was a big delay in the middle of um, of the series. And I don't actually remember exactly the dates, but I think it happened right around the splitting point that we did. Huh. Am I correct? Or did, I guess you, uh, you weren't reading it live, were you? No, I, I was not. Um, like I said, I only started hearing about it once the final issue came out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of funny. Yeah, that that must have been weird. Yeah, well, and what as caused it, we do, we got into this a little bit last time. Um, it sounds like Matt Fraction was experiencing both personal issues and professional issues with Marvel, who was uh, ch- changing their stories, his stories around, making uh, his small, intimate stories into big events, and then telling telling him his big event ideas are no good. And I think he was burned out, and he was just trying to finish the series because uh, it was great and everyone loved it, and he loved doing it, but. He was like mm. soured on Marvel. Is my um, armchair take on it? I, I, he hasn't really um, said too much about it in interviews because he is polite in that way. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if he would have, if the series would have been longer if that aspect was not there, or if this was kind of like he's like, all right, this is kind of the vision I can see for it. Um, maybe they would have been split up more for longer. So the general gist of these two volumes are at the end of last time. Hawkeye, Kate Bishop, goes all the way to the West Coast to have her own West Coast Avengers-style antics, uh, and Clint stays behind in New York City, or I guess Brooklyn, to figure out, you know, what is he doing with this this apartment building where one of his tenants' friends got brutally murdered because of him, kind of. Yeah, and it, you know, and it was one, it's one of those great stories that kind of builds without you noticing it. Where like Gil is pretty funny in the barbecue at the beginning, calling him a hawk guy, <laughs> and then they have that little adventure that just seems like oh, an episode of Hawkeye where uh, Hurricane Sandy happens and he has to go help uh, Gil's dad, <laughs> and then you're and then Gil dies and you're like uh, you look back and you're like when did this guy become my favorite character, my best friend, T- brutally taken from me without uh, rhyme or reason. <laughs> Yeah, it snuck up. It's stuck up on me. I was reading it again, and just like I, I forgot how much of the second half was about dealing with Gil's death, and it's like really earned because <laughs> I really was feeling it. Oh, for sure. I also the set, reading it this time had forgotten when when his death happened. I was like, oh no, I thought it was later. Yeah, and because the pacing in the back half is so much weirder than the. I mean, the pacing in the first half wasn't normal. No. But the, both the, by splitting up the cast, that's a little bit weird, and I don't know. Like uh, these issues really feel like they were written many months apart. It's, it does not see. It seems like every time you sit down, it feels like uh, you have to start all over. Am I crazy? A little bit. Uh, no, I. I mean, I. I didn't get that feeling as much. Uh, I think part of that is also because. So I read this in trade, uh, and if you were reading it in single issues, you would have a wildly different reading experience from me reading it in trade, and I presume you reading it in the hardcover omnibus, because once we get to this point, 
all of Kate Bishop's uh, West Coast issues are collected together in a trade called L.A. Woman. And then volume four, Rio Bravo, is all of uh, Clint's stuff in Brooklyn, except for the final two issues where the two, you know, come back together. Um, I'm looking through. It's interesting. Yeah, they do them in... um... In publication order. Oh, so you were going. You oh, were going. Oh no, you're back right. You're right. Forth. This is, goes 16 to 18. It's like okay, yeah, it's all mixed up. They did it. They collected it like the paperbacks. You're right. I didn't even okay. notice them doing that. It yeah. still alternates, but um, it'll give the issues in like pairs in this hardcover. Oh, that's really weird. It's really weird. You get like odds and evens. It switches like twice before they meet back up. Oh. I gotta tell you, it felt so natural. I didn't even notice it when I was reading. Interesting. Yeah. Unfortunately, I did not have that natural feel. And it probably, in fact, near the end of of the L.A. Woman stuff, it probably feels better to have it done issue by issue or that hardcover reading order. That's probably the definitive reading order. Yeah. And I feel like the the Clint-Kate split, in the very least, it's tough to say, Clint-Kate split. Mm -hmm. That's that's obviously a deliberate artistic choice. That doesn't feel like it was forced or or like because of circumstance. That sounds like it was a part of the plan from the beginning. Yes. And, but because, you know, along with the rest of this comic being so experimental, like the, the fractured narrative, um, they made it feel experimental, even though lots of comics have done that lots of times. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's so, it's so funny. It's just, uh, it's an ineffable feel. Cause like Chris Claremont and the Simonsons were doing this shit in the eighties, <laughs> right? Like go read Walt Simonson Thor. You'll, um, have like a weird aside for a couple issues and you will check in with characters, uh, issue by issue and not hear about them. And then they get like, uh, catching up with them. Where was Balder? That kind of stuff, I kind of, I miss. I miss that, that it makes the world feel actually, you know, big and lived in. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the LA woman also collected the annual issue while Rio Bravo collected Winter Friends. Right. And Winter Friends in this, as we talked about last time, I went back and I read it again because that is just so good and fun. <laughs> but that was, um, that happens like in the middle of the Christmas story. Yeah. yeah well, this I really um I I've had this hardcover for years and I've definitely like read it before even I've read I probably this was the first time I read the story beginning to end since uh, getting the hardcover. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I'm really just talking to you. I'm really coming to appreciate the care they put into the issues uh, order and the, there's just a bunch of little touches that make this really fun to read. Yeah, for sure. I also um I so I just looked this up because I remembered this and I was like that can't be. That's too crazy and stupid. Marvel would never do you remember what happened after Volume 4, what the next Hawkeye comics were? It was the Jeff Lemire all-new Hawkeye. And you're that ran... you're um, mm-hmm. not entirely correct. Jeff Lemire did launch an all-new Hawkeye, but that was the middle of the Jeff Lemire run because they did not relaunch this Hawkeye book right away, and they kept the numbering. What? And when you look, um, Hawkeye, the first Jeff Lemire Hawkeye comic is, uh, in trade is Hawkeye volume five, all new Hawkeye. Yes. But it's, um, but that's issue 23. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I believe so. Yeah. But Jeff Lemire took over the book right after this. It was, it's just funny because I feel like now Marvel broadly has a policy of you hire a creative team, knowing their vision from the beginning, you have like a finite amount of time. That's a little bit flexible Mm -hmm. to tell that story. Maybe you'll get the plug pulled. Maybe it'll be a runaway hit. Mm -hmm. And then that story ends. There's like sort of an ending to whatever the creator set up and, um, 
and a new creative team starts and they renumber it. It's so funny to me that when Hawkeye was coming out, they didn't know what the fuck they were doing. Like, <laughs> they didn't have a... that Even the policy I'm describing, they don't do consistently and it's still annoying in a hundred ways. But fucking back with Hawkeye, they're just like, well, people love this Hawkeye series, so we're going to keep publishing it. But it's a new series. But we're going to... like. It's mm. like right, like a. It's right in this weird zone when uh, they couldn't make up their mind whether or not they were trying to trick their readers yes. into reading other writers, or thought that they were just like. Well, it's oh, either the they were keeping the the old. Tra- it was the the changing the guard from, you know, continuously updating the teams but keeping the numbering and the new style of you get six issues and then we're giving you a new new title and a new numbering and then we're giving you six issues and a new title and a new numbering ad infinitum. Sometimes they'll change the team. Sometimes they won't. Yeah, yeah. It um, it, it it's not consistent now. Yeah. But I just remember when I when Lemire took over on Hawkeye, it just was like the Wild West times because, <laughs> um, because I I felt like they should end the numbering because the this series was like so uh, immediately mythic and felt kind of sacred. And then they're like, oh no, it's just an ongoing comic. Ah, actually, it's canceled. That didn't, that that uh, gambit didn't work. Yeah. And and that and then there's a bunch of volumes of Hawkeye after that. Like uh, there's the really good Kelly Thompson run, which is almost as good as this. I would even venture. I think it's more inconsistent, but definitely it ended way before its time. It was, like, less daring. It wasn't trying to, like, uh, push the boundaries of mainstream comics and, like, shake everything up. Yeah. Um, but it's just, like, it's, like, really solid, excellent Kelly Thompson character work. Mm-hmm. And then she kind of was the Kate Bishop writer for a bunch of years, and, like, uh, everybody would talk to Kelly Thompson before they did a Kate Bishop comic. <laughs> Oh, that's good. I want to, in these last couple issues, like, uh, the idea of there being a Kate Bishop comic was so uh, unthinkable, like, right before this was coming out. And even when Kate was, like, popping off and people were talking about her from the first half of the comic, the fact that there would be this, like, recent Young Avengers character who's never been in a movie or a cartoon, and uh, she would be dominating issues of the series and, like, the headliner doesn't even show up. That must have been so hard to comprehend. Nowadays, they'll give a miniseries to America Chavez, and they'll give a miniseries to Iceman, right? And they'll just, like, uh, if they have a character who has a movie or who they want to remind people is a thing, or just, like, a creator says, I've got a really good premise for a Death's Head story. Which was really good. Yeah, it was really good. But like, uh, I now it's it's. But back then, I feel like Marvel wasn't publishing a lot of stuff that wasn't uh, Spider-Man book starring Peter Parker. Yeah, and their their publishing line is so much broader. And this is the book that really made that happen, right? Because it made Kate such a viable, bankable comic star. Where now she she's like headlining her own team, and they're not like keeping her. She she's allowed to show up in other people's books. She's got so much personality. Um. I feel like the old Young Avengers stuff we were reading, she didn't have as much personality and nobody could picture what she looked like not in the Young Avengers comic. Hmm. I get what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. The rise and success of Kate Bishop, I think, is so elemental to this comic strength and power and like what Mar- and the good lesson Marvel learned from this, that the right creative team can make any character into a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Like and that's worth pursuing. Hawkeye. Yeah, fucking Hawkeye. The the creative team knows that Hawkeye sucks. That's the premise of the comic. <laughs> the premise of the comic is Hawkeye sucks. What's that like? And it's it, the answer is fascinating. It's fascinating how much he sucks. All the weird shit he does. Yeah, and all, all the ways that life kind of 
kind of keeps kicking him. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of maybe not Breaking Bad, but like Better Call Saul. It's like this like small mm. local stakes crime drama with like really tortured people making bad decisions. And then the story is like looking at you and asking you, why do you think they chose to do that? Mm-hmm. And that's a really interesting question to chew on. Yeah. Like, did you know that his brother Barney, one, existed and two, was kind of one of his villains? Yeah. So let's talk about Barney Barton. Uh, Charles, what's his uh, full I name? I know. You don't know his full name? I don't uh, know. Charles Bernard Barton. But everyone Ooh. called him Barney. Yeah. But so, um, I... You seem to be struggling with him. No, I'm just chewing on this. Like, um... So I mentioned in the last episode that I was really into the stupid Avengers Facebook game that came out to uh, promote the movie that I played for years. Yeah. One of the... And I have friends who are also playing that who aren't as, you know, uh, comic fanatical as we are. So they don't read all the comics of all the characters. So, like, I knew... But that game had Spiral in it. She was, like, notable in Phantom X, uh, some X-Men characters that my friends know because of this. Wow. And there was a level where you would fight, um, like, this evil mirror version of Avengers, and there was, like, a Captain Hydra and, uh, like, a evil, and, like, a Ragnarok with, like, the the cyborg with the hammer, and one of them was Trickshot. So Trickshot, like, really seemed like a, an obvious villain to me because the idea of having, like, a mirror Dark Avengers oh. is, is such a good idea. And now that I'm saying it, I believe that when Jeff Parker took over Dark Avengers from Brian Michael Bendis, kept the numbering going for a little while, then they renumbered it, then I think it turned into Thunderbolts or some shit. Probably. Just like, I don't even remember, but like, it was like a, it was called Dark Avengers. Trickshot was on the roster because they were pretending to be the real deal. So Trickshot was being Hawkeye and wearing the purple. Right. And Trickshot is Barney Barton. Yeah, Trickshot is Barney Barton's uh, villain name. You know, I actually completely forgot about that, and I think I originally learned it in the Jeff Lemire run, because it's yeah. not really mentioned here. And it's not right. important here. Yeah, it's not important here. And I like but so I really like that the Jeff Lemire run goes on to, like, tell more stories about Clinton Barney, because that, they're, so I, I'm talking about, I'm, from, I'm familiar with the idea that Clint Barton has a brother named Barney Barton, who's also an archer, who is kind of a bad guy. Mm-hmm. I don't really think I've read any, like, Silver Age or even Bronze Age trick shot stories, although I'm sure they exist because old Avengers comics are mostly pretty bad. <laughs> like, right? That's not a secret? No, it's not. Avengers doesn't even get, like, remotely readable until, like, 95 at the earliest, probably 2005 if we're being real. And, like, there, I don't think there was a good Avengers comic before, like, 2012. <sighs> hey, don't don't knock the Kurt Busiek stuff. Oh, I mean, the Kirby stuff, it was the stuff in the 90s I was talking about. It's okay, it's not his best work. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, uh, you know, like, the Sistine Chapel is Music's best work level. Yeah. But but I never wanted, like, Barney makes sense to me in this cartoon way, where when you need to have a guy who's, like, the same as Hawkeye, but he is evil, you call on that guy. But I've never, I, I didn't know anything about, like, what he was like. And so this yeah. comic being the thing to, like, fill in those gaps made Clint feel really three-dimensional because I, like, understand his childhood in this way that I don't think I ever cared about his childhood. Mm. Yeah. And it kind of makes me, like, uh, want there to be... I don't need, like, a Barney solo series, but I feel like there's, like, an interesting team book about, like, uh, Barney Barton can be in there. Uh, D-Man, Demolition Man, can come. Maybe, like, um, one of the many Captain America sidekicks that went by Nomad. But you know what I'm talking about? This, like, riding the rails, hobo, 
looking after the little guy kind of comic. That's what I feel like Barney is in this story. Hmm. So kind of like, I didn't read the book, so I don't know what it was like, but kind of like what they wanted Occupy Avengers to be. Occupy Avengers was actually really readable and fun. Hmm. But yeah, it, it had Clint in it, in fact, and Clint doesn't make as much sense to me as Barney because even though Clint isn't like a Tony Stark billionaire or whatever, he does own an apartment building with that he bought with stolen mob money, right? And he does <laughs> hang out in Avengers Tower and has like the ear of some of the most powerful people, movers and shakers of his world. Yeah, even if they don't always respect him. Right, and he's he's the loser on that team, but he gets to go to the meetings. Barney, if Barney showed up, they'd stop the meeting and, like, put him in the raft. Mm, yeah. So, yeah, I just, I thought that um, having Barney be the even scummier, even more down-on-his-luck archer who, um, who like, in comparison, to, makes Hawkeye look like an A-lister, I thought is, that's such a good angle. For sure. It's never something I knew that I wanted <laughs> until this comic. That's kind of how I felt about it, too. When he showed up, I was like, "This he makes a really nice foil to Clint because he's just kind of there. And you're like, what's his deal? What does he want? Clearly, Clint doesn't really trust him, but he does. Like, I liked that the, the tension in between the two of them and the sense that, you know, Barney's trying to do good and, and Clint believes him, but he also knows not to trust him and... Um, and you kind of see that dynamic play out. Yeah, there, there's lots of superheroes who have, like, a troubled sibling, right? That And that's what got all the fanfic written about Thor and Loki. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, like, I really, like, um, they just, like, sell me on these guys as real guys. Because, like, they grew up in, like, uh, you know, middle America, like, Kansas or Missouri or whatever. Um, in, like, farming country, and they had an abusive dad, and they didn't always treat each other very nicely, and they ran away from home, and they joined the circus, and they learned to be, like, these cool warriors. Mm-hmm. This, like, feels like a person's life now, in a way that, like, Carol Danvers, none of, like, the, the many retcons of Carol Danvers' life story have not made her feel more of a person to me. They make her feel less of a person. I don't, I don't, I would comment on that, but I don't know enough of her retcons. I know there have been a few. And I know there have been some some bad bad ones. Like uh, whenever they're like, uh, "Oh, actually, uh, K- Carol Danvers went back in time and gave herself superpowers." And did you know that her mom was a Kree agent all the whole this whole time? And it's oh, like, yeah, this stuff isn't making like Captain Marvel a more interesting character. I want to hear more stories about. This is just like a plot twist, mm. right? But this Bar- this Barney thing gives so much texture to this little corner of the world and makes it feel viable in a way that it's probably not. Most writers probably wouldn't pull off a good Clinton Barney story. It's true. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm like, Jeff Lemire did right after this, but then I don't think Barney's been seen since. I mean, Clint's barely been seen since, but... Yeah. Uh, Clint's been in books. Yeah, but he hasn't had his book. No, he hasn't had his book in a minute, but he was like on um, the U.S. Avengers. Didn't read that. Oh, that book rules. We're going to read it for this show. We have to now. Oh, God. We- we've committed to so many books. Yeah. We've committed we're to, gonna two- commit we're to more until we read them all. Okay, all the Marvels. The last sentence of the Marvel wiki about uh, Barney Barton, he hasn't been seen since Hawkeye number 22 in 2015. So, yeah, you're right. Wow. I mean, technically. He he was seen in, in, I think, Flashback. Yeah, I'm sure he's been seen in Flashback and and mentioned. Yeah. But, like, not a lot of presence in the universe. No. So let's, I guess, go take our break. And then when we come back, we will be discussing the rest of Hawkeye. That was an arrow sound. (laughs) I know. (laughs) 
Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. And welcome back. We are talking Hawkeye Part 2, which means it's time to pick a coast and drive on over. But don't actually, because that'll take like two weeks. But if we're doing the annual, you're choosing West Coast. Well, this is true. This is true. We are. We are. I. I made the choice during the break. Um, I oh, tried how to do you feel about the West Coast? You're a New Jersey man yourself, yeah. I am. I am. Uh, East Coast is the best coast, and I know the West Coasters would disagree, but um, they're wrong. I'm picking a fight today. That's uh, a, no, that's cool. You can choose violence about the coast. <laughs> I think that I'm from the East Coast. I love the East Coast, but. I, I'm scared that I see... I'm secretly scared that I would be so happy on the West Coast that I would be like a blood traitor to our kind. <laughs> so I cannot go there. It's you like cannot. Batman. The reason why Batman can't kill somebody because if he did it even one time, he would realize he likes it so much that he has to kill everyone. Now, the the West Coast has a lot of nice stuff, but I think so does the East Coast. I've I've been around, all around the country, so I've I've experienced it all. Yeah. Mostly. I mean, not, re- not lately. <laughs> not since not I lately. went to my apartment and didn't emerge, but... Uh, I, I I've traveled the country a fair bit too. I um I've also I just realized been watching a lot of LA movies this week. <laughs> Watch Point Break. That's a great LA movie. Huh. And uh, Collateral with Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. Awesome LA movie. These are names. I know the names. I have not seen them. These movies are very in line with Hawkeye. I feel like uh, these feel like I mean westerns are what is going to end up being very Hawkeye. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. So in annual number one, we pick up where the end of the Lucky the Pizza Dog, Pizza is My Business issue ends. Uh, Clint is eating cereal. The cereal says doomed in it. Uh, Oh, yeah, so it does. (laughs) I was like, I was trying to figure out what's in the spoon, but I think the more important part is doomed right on the bottom. I I have never caught that. That's incredible. Yeah. And, you know, Kate leaves. They have their fight. Uh, And then we are following Kate on the West Coast. The basic premise of the entirety of this volume is Madame Mask is mad at Kate because she stole her orchids. And, like, uh, tied tied her up and stole her clothes and left her gagging bound in a hotel room. Oh, you're right. You're right. The orchids are here. It was the it was that (laughs) it was that I was like, it was the tape. She was mad. And I think she was extra mad that Kate didn't even care who was beneath the mask. Like that <laughs> yeah. somehow hurt her hurt her more than being tied up and, and impersonated. Uh, so now she's out to get her. And Kate is is kind of bumbling, and I like that. She's she's the a rich girl trying not to be, but doesn't quite know how. Yeah. It, um, you're making me think this is like there's, this whole book has an interesting uh, exploration of class. We were talking about Barney, who is a homeless person. Mm-hmm. But, like, Clint is a farm kid who is living the life of a Brooklyn hipster. And mm-hmm. Kate is, like, a New York society girl trying to live the life of, like, an L.A. bohemian. 
<laughs> and it's really like both of them don't feel like the life they were born into uh, is like working for them. And it's about them like trying really hard to be who they want to be and not who they are, maybe or who they could be. That's like a th- the, mm-hmm. you're making me realize that there's I wanted to think about thematic parallels because of the way these issues are split up. And I realized that um, it's funny that Hawkeye is like this converse wearing hipster, even though he's like a bumpkin. <laughs> That's an interesting tension. It is. It is. Especially because he's also a landlord. But, yeah. But not by design. It was by necessity. Right. And he is trying to think of it like he's the anti-landlord. He'll take care of everything and he really cares. But he's also like fucking it up because he's a human being and kind of sucks. Yeah, he, he's, he doesn't really know what he's doing. And I, I guess it's like people, it's the universal way in which people suck. Because, like, Clint's mistakes and his weaknesses are all really relatable to me, and Kate's are too. Mm-hmm. And um, and they and they're such yin and yang, where um, Clint is a poor person living the life of a rich person, of a landowner, of a landlord. Mm-hmm. And Kate is a rich person trying to live the life of a poor person, but she's so sheltered that she, like, doesn't know how to do her own laundry or whatever. Yeah, and they're both, I guess, I guess they're, they're both trying to do good and really don't know how to do it in the situations they're in like if they were swapped they probably would do a far better job yeah that's you know i didn't even thought that but that's funny too yeah layers the layers of this book so many of them the annual is not drawn by annie Wu or uh, david aha is it no it is drawn by javier Polito. that's and right at first i did not like the art on this issue like Javier Polito I've always kind of had a a back and forth relationship with because he made he would draw characters with such big eyes and I'd be like ah oh, this is scary they're gonna come and eat me um I like I felt this way when reading the James Robinson uh Scarlet Witch run I felt this way when reading the Charles Soule She-Hulk stuff which was drawn by Kevin Wada before Javier Polito and I loved Kevin Wada's art but I've grown to really like this style it's very um hernandez brothers from love and rockets oh that's such a good call yeah the especially the way he draws uh the face of a woman with an upturned nose and closed eyes and she's pouting a little bit that's like oh expression right <laughs> out of love and rockets yes yeah it's such a good catch i'm like so excited that you noticed this god this comic is good there's a panel so uh there's the first couple of pages uh when it cuts to la and uh, we are introduced to Madame Mask, where mm-hmm. we see um, Kate Bishop pulling off some sunglasses. <laughs> and that I'm like, yeah, I see why some people might struggle with this artwork. And that panel, I'm staring at it and I'm like transfixed by it. But but like uh, it's like you said, it's like scary. <laughs> she looks like yeah. she's going to eat me. But I don't mind the feeling because it's uh, it fits Fraction's writing really well. The like yes. heightened kind of sweaty <laughs> nasalness of it all. A little bit, yeah. And I think what Javier Polito does really well, which complements David Aja's art, is the flatness of it. Like, the intentional flatness of all of the art and the colors by... Uh, I think this one is... I don't think this is Chris O'Halloran. I'm sorry, it's Matt Hollingsworth. He did do this one. Yeah. I love Matt Hollingsworth's color on this. It's so good. Yeah. The, what what's really cool is that in the annual they're still doing the sort of like experimental stuff they're doing in the in the regular series with the regular artists like mm-hmm. um 
it, it has like this YA feelings for a little bit when Kate is thinking and she, like and she's her her very simplified face is like drawn into the her narration boxes. I love it. I I really wish more comics did this. Yeah, it's really cool, and it's immediately like, why don't you always do this? And it's funny, because now that I'm thinking about it, um, I we've talked a little bit about it on the show, but you've never read Fraction's run on X-Men. No, I haven't. And a and, and, you know, convention he introduced in that is, um, when every issue, it'll say the name of the character, and then, like, a weird little pithy quip about, like, their power and personality and whole vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Kieran Gillen keeps doing it when he takes over from Fraction, and then he takes it to the nth degree because that is like here in catnip to Kieran. Uh-huh. And, and th- that was a successful example of like one of these fraction touches where he ha- asked, where he was writing in these sort of uh, meta things and in, in the Hickman X-Men books. They, I just like, yeah, we know it works, but I, I, this is the only place I've seen this in Marvel. Yeah. And it's kind of, so a lot of shoujo manga does do this, but significantly paired back you'll just have like the kind of floating head of the character talking and it's usually when two or three characters are talking to each other off panel and so you just get these little like glimpses into what the emotion is supposed to be but here it takes that and and it it makes it not more obvious that's the wrong word but it's more it's more a uh, cartoon because like yeah. uh sometimes she's looking at her thoughts that are next to her face mm-hmm. But sometimes she's looking at the reader, and sometimes she's, like, looking down and away from them kind of furtively. Yeah. Like, um... They are regular panels. And what's funny about it is, um, it's internalizing something that comics can make external, which is we, like, are seeing a version of herself in her head in that way where, like, you think something happy, then you realize a downside to it, but then you get optimistic again. And, and like, um, you might not be showing this all on your face in significant ways, but, like, uh, her, like, more emotive cartoon self can feel for her. Mm-hmm. This issue also introduces us to Kate Bishop's dad, who I actually think is a really interesting character. Yeah, he kind of looks evil from the start. <laughs> oh, definitely. Like, uh, he's introduced in this, like, stark white apartment, and he's got a girlfriend who's probably uh, the same age as Kate. I think, no, they are. They were classmates. <laughs> That's right. They, yeah, there's a joke about that. I'm just, like, looking at the artwork. I'm not even looking at the words. But, yeah, they were classmates. Who's in the back? Who's that in the background of that, that panel? Is that... Is, is oh, that one a, of the Inhumans? No, that's a famous... Uh, the, in the painting? Yes. No, I think that that's, like, a famous uh, a famous painting. That's, like, a famous, like, pop art thing from the oh, 60s. Oh, Lichtenstein. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. what panel did he take for it? I. That's a great question. I mean... I know art people. I guess I should ask a good art person. <laughs> what I wanted to say about Kate's dad, though, is he. I can't think of another Marvel character who has this dynamic. A lot of people have evil dads. Evil dads are a dime a dozen in the comic books. Mm-hmm. But Kate's dad is evil in like an everyday shitty way. He's just like he's a rich person who's unscrupulous enough to like work with villains, um, but he's not doing anything illegal or that superheroes can put you in jail for. Mm. Like, Wilson Fisk is secretly ordering hits and stuff. Wilson Fisk is, like, definitely doing illegal activity. But Kate's dad is just, like, legally evil. He's just, like, rich and he takes advantage of people and he's an asshole. (laughs) And so, like, if, you know, if you're, like, the redeemed kid of the Red Skull or fucking whatever, you're never gonna have a problem with taking down the Red Skull, putting him away, whatever. Yeah. But, like, Kate might want her dad to go to jail, but, like, he won't and other superheroes might disagree with her and say your dad's not doing anything wrong. That's just, like, the order of things. Hmm. And I think that's unique in Marvel. I can't think of another character who has a family member like that. 
there might be, but yeah, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head, at least. Yeah, like, there's people with, like, ri- asshole rich parents, but yes. Kate's dad, like, works with supervillains, you know? And has no scruples. None. Yeah. I think he's a, I think he's a fascinating character. I was, uh, it would bum me out when the, uh, the show changed the dynamics with her parents. Yeah. The, the show had its, had its good parts and bad parts, but one of, one of the frustrating parts was how it kind of flattened that whole situation more. Yeah. In trying to make it more interesting. Cause yeah, cause all my favorite parts of the show are like bits from the comic. <laughs> For sure. So this is where, uh, right up in the, the, next is where we like meet Whitney Frost and that's Madame Mask who, um, is like, shall we say conventionally attractive? Yeah. I don't, I, I don't know where you're going with this. Oh, but, but she wears a mask all the time. What, oh, how quirky. Yes. Yeah. Cause usually most of the people who are wearing masks like that are Dr. Doom. Right, and, and like, I feel like by implication, her shtick is, like, she's like, you can't see my face, I'm horribly disfigured. Yeah. But 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 she's not, and that kind of, like, helps her go undercover, because it's like, well, surely uh, no one who is so weird about wearing a mask all the time would look like this. And would be just wandering around at this poolside, you know, villa. What's your uh, acquaintance with Madame Mask? Is this, like, mainly where you know her from? Yeah, I mainly know her as, you know... Hawkeye's nemesis, essentially. Yeah, um, I like how she gets positioned as a Hawkeye nemesis, especially Kate, because they. I loved uh, the way Kate's been so antagon- like unknowingly antagonistic. <laughs> um, now, Spider-Man has that relationship with some villains, and that's really fun. For sure. But Matt Fraction wrote a bunch of Madame Mask stuff in his Iron Man, and she was a villain for his Iron Man run as well. Oh, well, that would explain why she, why she showed up back here. Yeah, it's just, I, I thought it was funny, because you, if you follow a, a comic book guy's uh, career, you can, and you, like, uh, chronologically, you can sometimes find, like, weird arcs for pet characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think of Madame Mask as, like, an Avengers slash Iron Man villain, because that's where I met her first. Huh. So this her moving on to Kate here and making it personal is just, like, a great development of, for her as a character. For sure. I do also love how... She- so much of this is kind of petty, yeah. Especially so the petty. way the way it's set. She sets Kate up. She's like, at first, she gets her credit cards canceled. Although that could have also been her dad just canceling it. Yeah. Um. We don't. We don't really know. And then you know she befriends her, gets her alone at her house, and then tries to poison her with acid. Sure, she's a super villain. That seems yeah. like a the bare the bare minimum I should expect. Uh. But Kate escapes fucks up her her house uh and madame mask vows to destroy her but like by the end of the issue uh kate's like annoyed everybody broken her nose and it's just generally like and then it's just like establishing this is what hawkeye does hawkeye like goes to the wrong house and then needs to make a stupid escape in which he gets really hurt mm-hmm or he or she any hawkeye yeah. and then in this case she's like you know what i'm gonna be a detective but first I'm going to cat sit for these two two lovely, lovely old ladies. <laughs> Which is delightful. I Also, th- this is a really cool development that um, I feel like sometimes uh, they, they'll try to make a character work, but they don't have like a strong sense of genre. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in a superhero universe, but like like Runaways, the original Runaways has a great sense of genre, which, and the genre is YA. Yes. And that was before YA was really a defined thing, too. Sure, yeah. 
I, I would wonder, I guess you're a librarian, I'll defer to you. <laughs> but the, the different, but Hawkeye, Clint stories have been like, um, like, like sweaty New York, uh, like everyday adventures with a little bit of like, uh, international espionage. And Kate is now a California private eye. And this is like such a fun vibe, like, um, like LA Confidential. <laughs> but, but a little more, but with the, the Hawkeye trademarked schlubbiness. Totally. But I think that that's a, that fits in the genre very well. Like, um, what's another good L.A. noir one? Um, I feel like L.A. Confidential is all I had it in me. Um, <laughs> but, like, the, uh, the like, uh, juxtaposition of, like, the uh, sunny skies and her broken nose and her black eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, California detective stuff. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is a good one. I'm just trying to think of more uh, movies that I like with the... Uh... I was going to say TV shows, you... Angel... Uh... Yeah. Knight Rider? LA Detective is such a thing. Yes. And it's such a good... And uh, putting Kate as this, like, young woman who's cutting herself off from her privilege and trying to, like, make an identity for herself. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a great idea for the character, and that has been what her character became. Like, that's who she is now, always, when I see her. There's an essential spine to the character. I guess what Matt Fraction, I guess, is, is trying to do here is establish who Kate is on her own. But totally. retaining all of the same things that Hawkeye on the East Coast is doing, just with the West Coast flavor, simply because he's also trying to say Hawkeye's essential nature uh, is fighting silly goon squads with a ridiculous villain at the top uh, and kind of futzing it up the whole time. And saying things like futz. <laughs> exactly. Because here she she's constantly running into the the bellboys. Oh, I love the bellboys. The bellboys, and I mean they don't have the same kind of um, shtick as the tracksuit Dr- Draculas, other than their dress. But they they're also kind of bumbling in there, and they they keep showing up to foil her plans in just like the smallest mundane ways. But it throws her completely off. <laughs> I uh, if you like, uh, I love me a, a good like themed villain goon squad. Mm-hmm. If you like that, you're in for a treat with the next book we're doing for Book Club, which Ooh. we'll talk about at the end of the episode. We will. There are some good matching goons in that. Love me a good goon. Are we jumping from the annual back to Clint? Um, We can. That's up to you. I mean, I'm flipping through my trade, uh, trying to figure it out. Uh, issue 12 is what I just jumped to, because we haven't talked about issue 12 yet, have we? No, we haven't. So I got to switch trades. I'm going to be <laughs> jumping back and forth, because like I said, it's all of Kate and then all of Clint. Um, actually, um, let's first talk about 17, your favorite. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that... Whatever. You, we gotta talk about this. You don't find this as delightful as I find this? No, I do. But this is just where it showed up in my trade. It didn't show up until the fourth volume. This... it's I'm looking at this. This uh, whole thing reads weirdly now in this way that I think is, like, historically interesting. Because... How so? Because I feel like a part of the joke of this is like um the i the the stock character of like a politically correct yuppie liberal who um doesn't have real problems so they like want school christmas celebrations to be more inclusive this was like a real stock character in the 90s right um maybe you, you, are not familiar with like uh, the annoying liberal yuppie of ninety six. I am, I am the, I am familiar with that character. I, it was the specifically like the the Christmas special, but no, I, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, 
But now uh, I I feel I don't I don't know how controversial this opinion will be uh, that we're living in a world that's like in the thrall of people who hysterically believe that that char- that character is like ruining their lives and that the most important thing is that we do say Merry Christmas kind of shit yeah yeah so I feel like this joke kind of it lands on the wrong side of like my political taste right now where they have like all the different multiple inclusive. Uh, winter holiday characters because um, on this like winter special because we can't say Christmas special anymore mm-hmm. and it's in good fun like Matt Fraction does I'm not getting like a, a bad vibe from this I'm just a little bit like uh, ooh this is like uh, reminding me of some real issues that have me very concerned yeah but at the same time I absolutely love every single one of these <laughs> winter friends characters and I yeah. would watch this show. I would absolutely watch this show. I love uh Samantha Haim the Bacon Princess. <laughs> and the quotes around uh, every single word in this it's just like the scary girl always reading alone in the library. Menorable. Yep, nine lives, nine candles, Lachaim. <laughs> yeah honestly really funny but then of course the winter friends who um live in the hall of justice from the super friends cartoon yep kind of fade back from the story because it becomes about a bunch of dogs that are just the characters in hawkeye so far (laughs) yeah you you've got steve who is our hawkeye uh analog and then lil who is supposed to be um kate bishop and i didn't notice that at first the first time i read it i don't think i was like oh I don't love that part. You don't like that characterization? I, yeah, because it fits perfectly with one side of the equation, which is, you know, the, the dog tropes that we're seeing here. Because Matt Fraction sure. is, do, is doing multiple riffs all rolled into one. But casting Kate as, like, the, the yippy dog who's following alongside and is, is supposed to be kind of the annoying one um, that, you know, it, it's... You know, we're supposed to feel annoyed by the whole time. We're supposed to be with Steve, kind of. Right. It definitely, it's definitely a Clint perspective on the story, not a Kate perspective. Yes. It almost makes you think that if she was uh, having a California Christmas time and she was watching this on the West Coast, if maybe uh, this whole cartoon would warp differently to match her perspective. Yeah, for sure. But it's a it's a minor gripe. Um, I mean, she the character is drawn adorably, as is um, Herman. The uh, fat dog representing Barney Barton. Oh, yeah. Uh, he keeps calling him brother and just, like, slobbering on him. Yeah. The weird part, or I guess the part that makes that not land at all, if you're reading it in your, in the reading order that it was, like, in Hawkeye or in this trade, well, we haven't been introduced to Barney. I mean, not to spoil a fun surprise, but uh, it turns out that Clint, Clint fell asleep on the couch with the kids watching the cartoon, and this is kind of his dream. Yeah. So this is just fun foreshadowing if you read this way earlier, and then Barney shows up, and you're like, oh, there was a brother in that sequence. Uh, It's fun. Okay. Okay, that's fair. Um, I love the dingoes that call every dog dog dog, Dog. and they wear tracksuits. They are perfect. (laughs) Tracksuit dingo. Tracksuit dingoes. Tracksuit dingoes is really fun. And, like, yeah, it's just this, like, cute issue that, like, read all the jokes. Us describing the jokes won't be as good as you reading the jokes. But um, there is a little two-panel... That I uh, have saved on my computer, and I just, uh, when I need to, well, need is a strong word. When I feel like sending somebody a non sequitur, I will sometimes pick this panel. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, the panel is um, Steve going at the Sun, who is the enemy of Winter, and who he's battling. And he says, "Hey, Mister Sun, the jer- jerk store faxed, and don't, and they don't like you at all." <laughs> and I just like really feel that sometimes. Hey, Mister Sun, the jerk store faxed, and they don't like you at all. Sometimes, sometimes that really captures something for me. That's a feeling that I, I think that I feel myself in a lot, and I return to those two panels. Yeah, and one of I guess what Fraction is trying to accomplish with this, in addition to having a fun winter parody, is to kind of, I guess, establish some of Hawkeye's insecurities. Because the whole time Steve is yelling that he can do this all by himself, and that's what he feels like he has to do. He has to take care of this this building all by himself. He has to be Hawkeye all by himself. He's always kind of on his own. He keeps pushing Kate away for that reason. He keeps pushing everyone else away. Uh, and he can't. He needs he needs other people to help him, not least of which because he's has one-liners like the jerk store faxed and they don't like you at all. Well, it's like a dog-brained uh, version of a Clint line. Yeah. Exactly. Also, I guess it's worth mentioning that, um, so this is issue 17, so it's coming out after the a lot of the story we're talking about. It was like, def- this definitely had to do with the delays. This was like a palate cleanser where uh, they couldn't get, he, you know, he couldn't get the scripts in on time or whatever, so he uh, went back and wrote this really silly story. Yeah, and they approached um, the letterer, Chris Iliopoulos, to draw the center sections, and I love Chris Iliopoulos' work. He does a lot of really nice children's books with Brad Meltzer right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we, we didn't mention him in the credits before. Uh, and there's one other person that we will mention later that didn't get credits in our previous episode uh, for reasons. Well, let's move on to um, to that Clint story then. Yes. So, Clint, number 12. Number 12. So who's the artist number 12? Is it? Um... Francesco Francavia. Um, yeah, my it is boy. He's back. Yeah, he's your boy, right? He's my boy. Yeah, he's your boy. I, I love him so much. Uh, Afterlife with Archie is probably one of my favorite comics. Yeah, I'm still waiting uh, for that to finish. Me We're too. all waiting me too. for it. The Sabrina versus Cthulhu issue was legendary. <laughs> for sure. But, so his art, when I'm flipping through this hardcover, his art sticks out like a sore thumb. The colors <laughs> are very different, and... The shading is different. Everything about it is different. Like, uh, there's a bunch of different artists who have their own quirks. Mm-hmm. But if you're just doing lightning round, this is what my eye picks up for, like, flipping the pages, the art that doesn't belong. Mm-hmm. Well, it's because he also, he colored himself as opposed to Matt Hollingsworth coloring. Um, because Frenzy yeah. always has similarly a very limited palette. It'll usually be in these oranges and blues and sometimes neon pinks and purples, but he really doesn't work with very many other colors. And it's really... I love the starkness of it. It works really well for me. I I actually... So I'm thinking... I loved... Elias is one of my favorite comics critics, guys, and he always gets me to think about art in a better way. Um, I think it... You're right about everything you said, but it's that the backgrounds in Hawkeye are so negative space and they're always white. Oh, mm-hmm. and the backgrounds in this, there's a lot of like oranges, there's a beige and like a peach. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are, those colors really clash with purple. And usually the, the other issues are all purple and white, purple, black and white. Yeah. With like little accents or whatever. But, but, um, having the background be such a color that doesn't go with, with purple at all. Um, it, it makes it stand out from every other book. Every other book looks c- is clean, and there's like neutral colors, and then a really shocking purple. And this has like very vivid oranges. Mm-hmm. 
It creates a, a sense of, of like hyper reality. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, uh, I'm, I'm not complaining. And the art, um, Fraction's a good enough writer that he writes to the artist. And mm-hmm. uh, it's a really moody issue. Yeah. A couple of issues. <laughs> what, what panel caught your eye? Uh, it's like that great Bronx, uh, poet of the Bronx said, said, tell her about it. <laughs> so this is the, this is the guild gets murdered issue. Um, no. Oh, no, I'm on the wrong page. This is the, uh, that was a line from the guild gets murdered issue, I mean to say. This is the Barney shows up issue we're talking yes. about. Yes. Yes. This is the Barney show that we kind of get basically Clint's backstory in some way. It's entirely focused on Barney. He showed up. We don't know what happened on the flip side of this conversation. We're just following him. He gets beat up by the tracksuit Draculas. He then beats up the tracksuit Draculas and we see why he's Bar- um, Clint's brother. But interspersed with that are, you know, what was their family life like? And we see that Clint was the uh, impulsive person who tried to beat up his dad after his dad basically was threatening them and then eventually died in a horrific car crash. Yeah, although I don't think uh, we get more into the car crash in the next in the Lemire stuff, I think. Yes, we just kind of, you know, see it here and we see it's it's pretty like hard to see. It's just this 12 panel grid three words on the whole page it's really good comic and when clint and barney find out about their parents death like he's just looking down the whole time barney looks shocked they say boys and then clint and then he just says good i was like yeah. wow and it says yeah. a lot about clint that like he's not necessarily that person anymore but you'd think normally in a story like this it would be reversed like Clint would be the shocked one and his brother would be the one being like good and then that sets off our understanding of their relationship but it's the reverse here. Yeah, you know, the way you're describing it is kind of different than how I read it, but I like your read a lot. Mm-hmm. Cuz for me this is really establishing the comics moral universe that like the mm. evil of Clint's dad and their childhood was so much uh that Clint like wanted to fight it because Clint uh is driven to fight evil. Mm in like the moral universe of how this comic is presenting, like mm-hmm. having an alcoholic shitty dad. Yeah. That he's a villain. Um, in the same way that Dr. Doom is a villain. I really like, um, throughout the issue, there's a lot of, uh, he keeps on repeating the, uh, what's up chicken butt. <laughs> that I, I like how much that establishes both of them as like dweebs who come from like, I don't know. It sounds like the 1950s. <laughs> like they grew up in a different place in a time out of time. Mm-hmm. And now now here they are in uh, the cold streets of New York. That is pretty intense. Um, just, I'm just picturing them because they would have grown up in like the 40s and 50s originally. If totally. If it weren't for t- sliding timescale. Totally. Um, and make, just making it that they grew up in like the concept of rural America out of time and like them talking in old fashioned, just them talking old fashioned helps make them feel timeless, which works with the sliding timescale thing. Yeah. In that way, we're like, Iron Man was in a war. Which war? Pick one. Whatever the U.S. was doing recently, it was something. <laughs> yeah, it was something. Yeah, what, what, when are his Clint from in the, um, in the timeline of rural America? I don't know, at a time when people told cheesy jokes and had alcoholic dads. That's it, pick a time. Pick a time, any time. It'll be true. It'll probably be true. So after that, we get into issue 13 which is kind of filling in the gaps of this very fractured story between pizza is my business the annual and then now so we kind of see what happened in between the death of gill and you know kate leaving 
yeah. Um, shout out to uh, David Aha drawing uh, Spider Woman's old costume. I get why they don't love this costume anymore because uh, most people really draw like a thick outline around her boobs, and they're just like two huge orbs looking at you in the face. <laughs> and maybe they wanted to step away from that, and I respect that. But like, such a cool mask. <laughs> such a <laughs> Such a cool color scheme, and the, the little uh, wing gliders in, in the armpits are so cool, and he draws that shit out of it. Yeah, I, I kind of miss... Yeah, I don't know. I haven't... I did. I do not like the, the new costume. I, didn't I don't like know what the last drawn. one you read was, but she, she went back to an older costume. Uh, some... She had, like, three costumes drawn by Perry Perez, and sadly, I did not like any of his art. Yeah, I mean, I didn't like the, that design either. Um, this old one is like classic and it, I think it's classic for a reason mm-hmm. we keep coming back to it because there's good elements there just like alter it enough so that it doesn't have the bad ones yeah oh my god I just realized this whole issue is in nine panel grids oh my god I'm th- you're right I didn't even notice yeah it, well it feels so natural that you, it's like uh, it's like invisible yeah um, the, which is funny because the credits are so uh, striking they're striking because it's a nine. Like that's using the nine panel grid really well. Is having all the moments in time be so uniform so that um, it feels like a metronome. And when the when it blinks off to show you the titles and it says a Clint Barton Hawkeye comic book, Hawkeye, a Clint Barton comic book written like a movie title. Mm-hmm. You take like a whole second more to read that as much as you look at the art. It's like tick tick tick, and that, right. That's how I read this whole page. Mm-hmm. It's like the flashes from the cameras. Yeah, flashes from cameras. It's re- it's got like a staccato rhythm all the way through, very mm-hmm. steady. So, question here though: the panel all the way on the bottom left, the old woman, is her boy the tracksuit Dracula? Um, that's a good question. I, I thought it was Gil. We haven't seen Gil have a mom. No, we just saw Gil's dad. I think Gil's mom is dead. I think because his dad yeah. Oh, he alone. mentioned that because her stuff was in the basement. Yeah. So I think I think this is foreshadowing for the end of the comic yeah you're absolutely right uh i, I missed that the first time and the second time god yeah I, I i read this closely there's it's 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 got depth it's got texture it's got layers yeah it's got a lot going on so i guess i don't know what else to say about this one other than it's it's moving it's affecting and it's also a really good i guess portrait of a man grieving and a man feeling guilty and then making everything worse for himself and and everyone around him by just kind of retreating into that yeah and i i know i was just singing the praises of other artists but um have aha being like the spine the foundation that this book rests on it's like really nice to be back to his thing it feels uh, going back to his art it feels like all right now we're getting serious again now we're moving the story forward kind of yeah um, when we talk about the Annie Wu stuff, I'll say nice things about the Annie Wu stuff. <laughs> oh, I guess the only thing else to mention is that it's really sweet when G- uh, Gil's dad takes over the grill and becomes like a member of the community Clint is trying to build. That's just like a sweet moment. Yeah, he's the new grills. Yeah, Papa Grills. Papa Grills. Being uh, Papa Grills sounds cool. He. It's so sad. <laughs> I don't know. I just thinking about that whole thing by bringing in the father. And, like, making him an actual part and not just, oh, it was this one adventure out, out in Long Island, out on Long Island. It, yeah, it, it it makes it more real. Like, it's, it's, oh, it's so heartbreaking having him come back and you're just like, he lost his wife and now he's lost his son. And that's a horrible thing to have. Well, I, also, this vibe goes so counter to what superhero media is dominated by right now. Mm-hmm. 
Because I feel like superhero media is so sweaty to be like, look, look, it's Doctor Strange. He's hanging out with Black Bolt. You love these guys. <laughs> and so you never get a moment when like, so you, where a, a character quietly makes an impact and then um, becomes something. They don't have room in these movies now. Like everyone is ca- is like an Oscar winner. Mm. And everyone, or everyone is setting up a, a feature movie. So you can't just have like a guy's dad who is sad and then he dies and he gets even more sad. But like... Uh, but he importantly sad well and like uh but then he begins to heal by uh by like listening to what his son was trying to tell him it's just like it's a really beautiful little quiet story that happens here and it's allowed to happen because his dad isn't like uh you know like whirlwind's dad too or played by uh like channing tatum. patrick swayze yeah channing tatum there you go patrick swayze. channing tatum is the new patrick swayze <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far. I think Channing Tatum could do, uh, could make Dirty Dancing, and I think that, uh, Patrick Swayze could do Magic Mike. <laughs> well, Clint Barton And I also think that Channing trying. Tatum could do Roadhouse. Huh. Channing Tatum, Channing Tatum should do a remake of Roadhouse, written, directed by, and starring Channing Tatum. Anyway. He plays everyone. He just He's just yeah. running back and forth on the screen. A one-man show, but on stage. Anyway, issue 15, is that the next one you got? Yes. Yes, fun and games. It opens with Chinese food on the ground. And it's that's such a good Hawkeye image because, like, is there anything more gross New York than, like, Chinese noodles and fried chicken in a thick sweet sauce just, like, on the dirt and sidewalk spilling over gross gum that somebody left there? Yeah, it is also indicative of just a bad day when you lose your takeout on the ground. There's no <laughs> saving that. Yeah, so by the time it zooms out and we see that his pants are literally around his ankles, mm-hmm. it's like, at that point, it's just like, yeah, it makes sense. You, you dropped your Chinese food. I wouldn't expect your pants to be not around your ankles. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's and that's Hawkeye, baby. It's just like, it, it's got such a such a personality. Yeah, and it's still playing on kind of the conventions that the comic has set up before, which was, okay, this looks, and then usually that's followed up with, bad and then him falling out of a window or something but in this case it's his pants falling down and him saying completely ridiculous good stuff good <laughs> yeah. stuff sorry i flipped ahead to where uh clint tricks the tracks of dracula's and to saying the magic word which is barney which is how barney knows to come and kick the shit out of them <laughs> that's a good bit that's really fun it is a good bit it's really sold by the whole team's art the lettering I love how um, Iliopolis puts it behind their shadows. Yeah, yeah, like um, like the sun just uh, came out. It's nighttime, but like the light suddenly is shining really brightly on them, and you can't even see them. Yeah, yeah. I I also find it funny that he he throws a trash can lid, like he's Captain like America, a Captain now. America shield, but yeah. for garbage people. Yeah, which is kind of the the vibe, I guess. Like, yeah. In those kinds of situations, he's just like, oh, Cap's going to save me. And I was like, Cap's not coming to save you. And then you get the shield out of nowhere. It's a, it's a, it's a nice uh, channeling of that. Well, and it, yeah, right. It stands in a nice parallel because it's like, uh, uh, this is the day he's not being an Avenger. So he can't use, you know, no vibranium shields today. Yeah. And this issue feels a lot more piecemeal than other, other issues. And I think that's because it's channeling basically a crossword 
that's kind of the the vibe I got from it. Like panels will be will be pushing into other ones, and it'll be it's kind of like someone pasted small squares everywhere, which isn't usual for um, the pages. We get a lot of small panels, but not usually like laid out like this. Well, and in the images, uh, they're much more camera-like than the typical comic image would be because um, they really disappear beyond the like so the edges of the panel of the lens. Mm-hmm. Um, so it feels like uh, you're, uh, you paused it when a camera was like going across a table, and so the the coffee cup is ha- is like a half out, and you can sort of see the crossword. It's these weird pause frames that are much more, and it, it, it like uh, makes the cinematic feeling mm-hmm. so much more vivid. And a lot of people aren't looking at the screen, like when we get to the Kazu scene he's the only one that we see the face for everyone else the face is either cropped out or blocked off or in shadow he's the only one in profile uh or that's well because he's the only character here everyone else is just like shadowy meaningless figures true but a lot of you know comics wouldn't think to do that they just draw generic looking people but here it feels intentional and i really like that or like the words are literally being cut off because it's unimportant yeah yeah, and that also is cinematic. Sometimes people are murmuring in the background, and it's just a noise. Yeah, there's not. I like. It's hard to not go into every single page of these because it's so dense and it's so interesting. But at the same time, then we're just summarizing. And then Hawkeye broke through a window and beat up some bad guys. Yeah, like, it, podcast is not a medium to uh, be really closely uh, looking at and talking about art, although I'm actually trying to paint a word picture now and again. Mm-hmm. Um, this issue, I guess, is really plotty as part of the problem because it's setting up the um, connections between a bunch of disparate threads that uh, Kate's dad is working with the tracksuit mafia to get Clint out of the apartment because these investors who Kate's dad is working with want to, like, build a... What do they want to build? Uh... Casino? Like a super collider? Maybe. Uh, it's either a casino or they just want to tear it down and build up luxury apartments. You know, yeah. the, that old scheme. Yeah. Um, and it works for it works for the villain thing. And it's nice because it's been played out slowly where, um, like, the tracks of Dracula's and Kate's dad and the clown, um, it, like, how they were connected seemed kind of incidental. And now we're seeing, oh, no, this has been, like, a whole uh, clockwork contraption. Yeah. Uh, but so the issue ends... Well, the issue ends that we we see the granny again in one panel, recreating that connection. This was where I noticed the granny, because I'm like, we saw the granny way back when in like somewhere in the first volume, um, because she had, she either had Arrow, I think it might have been when Lucky was first introduced. We see Uh that Arrow was her dog or was staying over or something. That's where I first saw her. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the issue ends with Kazu in his makeup as the clown. He's infiltrated the the house. He picks up two arrows and he basically demolishes the the two Bartons. Um, he shoots Barney in the back and he stabs Clint in the ears. Yeah, and it's like really uh, visceral violence in a way that this has mostly been cartoon violence. Pretty brutal. Yeah. Is this still Aha on these pages? Yes. It, you know what the, I. Yeah, it is, but you know who he's evoking for me is uh, Alex Maleev. Oh, yes. Um, Him and Hollingsworth together. Because yeah. I think Hollingsworth changes the way he colors these pages a little bit. They're, uh, it, yeah, I'm noticing. You flip back and forth. It's pretty vivid, and then it goes very dull. But, like, the picture of Clint screaming with blood shooting out of his ears, the blood looks like an airbrush you're spraying. Mm. 
Um, and I and uh, Malieve loves airbrushing stuff. He does. He does. So, but it, yeah, shockingly every like sh- shockingly down to earth violence for such a cartoony series so far. Mm-hmm. And then once that's over, we jump back over to Kate for three issues. That's right. Sorry, I'm going in my uh, stupid trade order. Well, no, so the, okay, so your want... stupid trade order, I think, is literally the issue order, right? For this part. Yeah. Actually, are you issue 14? I just arrived at issue 14. Oh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. So they don't do any cape before that. No, no, I'm, I flip back to the capes. Oh, it's... okay. Yes. But I wanted to... Uh... So I, this is where I just want to mention that. So Annie Wu takes over here. Now, I remember when these issues were first coming out, the AHA art was such a part of the personality of the series. Having a second artist didn't exactly make sense. She just felt like more like, she felt like a substitute for that first issue she was in. Kind of. Now it makes sense because uh, she was there for the Kate issue and then she becomes the Kate artist when the story split. And what's cool is... It, I guess that first issue, it feels to me like she's trying to learn the AHA Hawkeye style a little bit. And this is where she does, she just does the woo Hawkeye style. <laughs> she's like, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm on the West Coast. I can do what I want. Yeah. And the, like all of the stark negative space that, um, that AHA is doing for New York is not there in uh, California. Uh, California is like so much warmer. And, um, there's always, I don't know, there's always like rocks or sand or like, uh, some big crunchy texture. Yeah. And it but it still is a lot of the same, you know, a lot of small panels, a lot of, you know, kind of cutaways. It ha- it retains the core of the flavor of the series without abandoning everything because it's a different artist. Yeah, but it, like um the differences are so key to the success of this comic of mm-hmm. having Wu do uh, Kate style a little bit differently and I think that has a lot to do with Kate's staying power and the uh, legacy in the comics. For sure. And um, and just like I remember being wrong about this. I remember being like, this is different and I don't think I like it hmm. before I knew where they were going. It's a little it's a little scratchier. And I don't always love I don't always love that. I don't always love the lack of fine detail. But like David Aha also does that. And like there, there's a lack of fine detail in some panels uh, or or in many panels. And you're like. Well, that looks a little weird, but it works. Yeah, well, like, I'm looking at a page where there's uh, one of those, like, crumbling wooden fences on the beach in in California that you're (laughs) always seeing in movies. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, like, the one detail on the page, and it, like, so conjures a sense of place. I I am—I can smell the ocean. Hmm. Um, And in a way that AHA is also similar, where he'll draw, like, a panel that has, like, one detail and everything else is in silhouette or something. Yeah, you'll you'll see a pizza rat, and you'll be like, ah, yes, I can hear the New York traffic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just two artists who are so good at um, illustrating a sense of place. Mm. But so Kate becomes a private eye, and uh, and she's doing her LA thing, and she's doing cases, and that's what the Clint series is about. The Kate series is about is um, she's got to go shopping in the grocery store. She's got to wear big, amazing, funny hats. She's uh, the cops are like, who's this rich kid who's getting into our business? And she's like, I'm a superhero. And they're like, geez. And they're rolling their eyes. And you and it's very self-aware, but you kind of know that she's just going to get in trouble the whole time. You're not actually going to really reach that like detective show cliche of begrudging respect. Although we kind of do, but not really. But she doesn't get a commissioner Gordon or anything. They're no. not putting an arrow signal on the sky. No, but she does get her arch nemesis other than Madame Mask, Weed Lord. <laughs> Love Weed Lord. 
What a name. Yeah, who, how can you not love Weed Lord? Weed Lord and the, and the Bell Boys. <laughs> He's good. They're good. But uh, the, the first, yeah, the first issue of this is just her on her first case. And each one is kind of an indiv- you know, a different case. But in the background, all of the different threads are connecting you know, to each other and, and, and building until we reach a, our inevitable conclusion. But first, she was hunting down some orchids for a nice couple for their wedding, uh, which was supposed to be perfect. But they got one one orchid, which is nice. Yeah, but uh, Madame Mask uh, secretly wants the orchids to take a bath with. Nothing maybe, <laughs> yeah. nothing that I would uh, say is worth life uh, killing people over. Madame Mask would disagree. That's a really relaxing bath. I does I you know now that I'm looking at it, it does look very <laughs> relaxing. Um, this is why she's a supervillain. Yeah, I mean, this is why I'm a supervillain. What works about this for me also is like traditionally a superhero has a foil who is kind of the same as them, but that shows how different they are. Mm-hmm. You got your Iron Man and your Iron Monger. You got your Doctor Strange and your Baron Mordo. Mm-hmm. And in the video game, they're just going to be the palette swap. It's just going to be the reptile and scorpions and some zeros. But that's what Madame Mask becomes for Kate because she's also a rich society girl and she's got a pretty similar background to Kate. And like uh, in a different world, they would be the best of friends. But like Kate chose being a superhero not, and Madame Mask chose being a villain. So they're enemies. Hmm. I didn't think about it that way. They are, they are a good. She's she's an extra good foil for that. I, for, I can't forget. I keep forgetting that she's a countess. Yeah, she's a she's a I I don't think the story lets you forget it. They're always no. she's always talking about yeah. Uh, yeah she's a countess and she's from Europe and she's used to having servants and she goes to the Alps. She's European. Yeah. How fancy. And that's a fun uh, a fun vibe. This is like a, I would love a Kate Bishop meets Anna Delvey comic. I don't know who Anna Del who's Anna Delvey. She's a lady who there is a podcast and documentary and Netflix series about who pretended to be a society girl in New York and just like conned a lot of people out of a lot of money and was living the life of a society girl because everyone assumed that she was some sort of Madame Mass Countess. Oh, wow. Um, but she was just a very successful con artist. Huh. Until she got caught. Ah. Uh, fascinating story. But that's like, a, that would be a great, uh, not a villain, but a character for Kate to encounter. And then she like wants to help her not do the like still anymore because she, she kind of i don't know I, kind, i'm just it's kind all of a uh, a loop on zenigata mix like you've you got your gentleman thief and you got your detective and they're, they're always kind of at, at odds with each other but you know they're not really bad or i guess yeah you, a cat woman or or black cat yeah so just anna delvey as a marvel character call her something different probably she's a real person so we we have to find a different cat because the only the only villains that are burglars are are they're only allowed to be cat burglars i mean i get the appeal cats are cool uh using your little kitty cat claws to make a perfect circle in a piece of glass is cool i guess maybe it's owl woman okay talons work I'm I'm flipping through this, and again, we don't have to like uh, the Kate detective story is like like fu- is is a lot of fun. Yeah. But like, just if you do it really fast, it still tells a great story. Like I just flipped. There's a traffic, L.A. traffic, uh, trailers on the beach. There's this guy who looks like Jeffrey Lebowski wearing an orange fuzzy robe. <laughs> yeah, I I really liked this the resolution to this, and a lot of these these you know just one off adventures is that they net. You know, they never end quite how you think they're going to, especially with Kate. That's kind of the point. But here, 
it's more complicated. At first you think, oh, this guy was cheated out of his, his all his time and his music and that by his brother. But, like, they both kind of cheated each other out of it for different reasons and they couldn't communicate with each other. And it's just... It and it's just kind of sad at the end. Like there, there's some some hope in in there, but it's not this nice, neat resolution that you think you're supposed to get from from a a case. Yeah, Fraction is really good at um, making every issue tell a, a complete story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and because that, that one of the reasons why I don't want to focus on every single plot machination is because of how dense like all the different plot twists are in the issue to issue stories. Mm-hmm. It's really I feel like this should be the standard that all comics are are shooting for, but obviously it's a tough tightrope to walk. Yeah, it is. Uh, I I'm just enamored with this one panel. You know, the musician, he's finally on stage, he's thanking everyone, and he, he goes to thank Kate, as his favorite superhero. Incredible Hulk, wherever you are, this is for you, buddy. <laughs> great stuff. Favorite superhero who always looks so great in purple. <laughs> I mean, he does. His pants are always purple. That's a good Spider-Man joke. You know, that really uh, makes a connection between Kate Bishop and Peter Parker, where they just, they have the same part. Kate has a bad case of Parker luck. Yeah, she kind of does. Yeah. The Parker luck is such an interesting concept. I, I always like when, when people bring it up and, and use it. It's good. Good. Yeah. It's good stuff. It's good. Well, that's why it's so, why Kate's so fun, because she got to borrow it. Yeah. So issue 18 is where we find out about Count Nefaria and, and start kind of tying all the threads back together. Count Nefaria. Count Nefaria. I love Count Nefaria. You know that Count Nefaria was the first villain that Chris Claremont had the X-Men fight? I didn't. Um, he's the one who kills Thunderbird. Oh. Oh, yeah. Count Nefaria's oh. got, like, a great presence in Marvel. Count Nefaria was the villain in, also set in L.A., uh, Brian Michael Bendis's Moon Knight series. Mm-hmm. And Count Nefaria was trying to construct an Ultron to be his slave. It was awesome. Count Nefaria really lives up to his shitty name. Yeah, they and they're very good L.A. villains. They yeah. weren't work so well in New York. There's like a version of this in New York, but yeah, I like them better in California. And I really wish the Marvel Universe committed more to um, identifying characters in different parts of the country and the world. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I liked it when Hercules moved to Brooklyn for a little while. That was my favorite Brooklyn comic. And... Um, when um, Scarlet Spider went to Houston, Texas, that ruled. And Venom went to Philadelphia. That was what? a fun year of comics. That's wild. Yeah, I really liked that initiative. They were trying to make there be Spider-Man in more major U.S. cities. Oh. And they were like, Venom fits in in Philadelphia, right? Philly, the citizens of Philadelphia are always like moments away from cannibalism, <laughs> eating brains. I guess, yeah. And Kane Parker is like a wants to get like lost in the desert, and he wants no where nobody knows his name, and he can start again, but his past catches up with him. It's good cowboy shit. <laughs> I was gonna say I'm like Philadelphia. That that's kind of sort of the premise of Philadelphia from Rodney Barnes <laughs> and uh, Jason Sean Alexander. I'm not the first person to notice that Philadelphians are a bunch of cannibalistic savages. Well, that's not quite what that's about, but, <laughs> but we can rag know. on Philadelphia all we want. <laughs> well, again. I'm I'm showing my sympathy for the West Coast, and I need to. <laughs> you need to draw, dial it back. I need to dial it back. I just I'm so enamored with how Annie Wu draws L.A. The sunset in L.A. looks so beautiful when Annie Wu draws it. Yeah. So issue 18 is kind of the setup for the fi- the end of Kate's time in L.A. It's the first of essentially a two-parter, wrapping it all up. Mm-hmm. 
Um, we find we see how Weed Lords tied into Count Nefaria. We find out about Count Nefaria, and we finally figure out who this like noir 1920s detective that's been hanging out by Kate's cat food for the last three issues ties into all of this. And it's weirder than you would ever have imagined. Yeah, it's just it's like real naughty and um and Wu gets to draw a lot of wild shit and I really like the haircuts she gives all her characters. Could you summarize for me what this whole plan is cuz I still don't quite understand it. Elias, I could not summarize it for you. <laughs> well, try. I try for me in the audience. Oh my god. Um No, I can't, Elias. I can't. Okay, then I'm going to try. Yeah, you tr- you try to explain it to me. I I'll the uh... Where do, where do I, where do you begin? <laughs> okay, so this detective guy, he used to be a reporter back in whenever, and he ended uh-huh. up he tried to report on the Nefs, who are the Nefarias. Uh, and he gets too close and they promise him that he can never leave LA again. They kill a bunch of people and they trap him there and you know, it's been however many years and they're like, you know, Kate tries to get him out. They beat him up, they don't let him out. She almost she almost succeeds, and then he's killed and tied up on the Hollywood sign. Uh, and then her trailer gets burnt to the ground. No, not her trailer. The the couple's trailer. Um, I don't remember their names. Their names. Aren't I don't remember said... their names either. But they were the ones who. Um... The married couple that that she helped with the orchid. Um, yeah, they were the ones who got married. The one with that the she orchid. borrowed their internet from. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out that Nefaria and. You know, both Nefarious, Madame Mask and the Count, are secretly life model decoys, but also maybe vampires. That part wasn't quite uh, clear, but they make they make copies of the people in order to let them live for the rich, and so they kept killing and bringing back this um, this reporter just to torture him. He's stuck in L.A. He can't do anything about it, um, and at one point, Kate you know, is, has to pretend to be the sushi girl at some horrible party to steal some information, uh, where she finds out that here's the connection to her dad, that her dad is one of the client lists for the Nefarias, which I guess means that he also wanted to get this new body for himself, but I don't know how people are supposed to be transferring the body, you know, the consciousness. Like, aren't life model decoys just robots? My read on that part, Jesus, I'm slipping, I'm flipping through this. I was like vibing with these issues. I just like uh didn't really put the thread together. I did read the K part in one sitting, yeah. a couple a week, like a couple weeks ago. But um, the bellboys are all life model decoys, though they feel no pain. What their my read on it was that they were planning on using the life model decoys to download their consciousness to to basically do like a Krakoan style resurrection and be able to um. Mm-hmm. To like continually uh, live forever in a series of identical bodies, but I guess and because this isn't really a sci-fi comic, they they don't bother or want to get into the the philosophical implications of any of that. It's just rich people want to do rich people shit, and they're doing it at the expense of others. Yeah, but he's not like Count Johnson. He's Count Nefaria. I feel like uh, it's all in the name. You know, you know he's got access to Doctor Doom machines. He's named Nefaria. I mean, yeah, yeah. So that's that's the long and short of these two issues. You know, Kate's trying to figure it all out, and it's a lot of fun. We've got antics. We've got that one bur- house burning down meme, which is great. I don't know if you caught that. I didn't, but now I see it. <laughs> but it's subtle. 
and it per- fits perfectly. It's very nice. Yeah, I, it was so subtle. I truly didn't notice, but now I can see it clear as day. That's so funny. Yeah. And Kate gets a call from Clint, so she has to to leave. Uh, and you know, she leaves, and it kind of feels. She says at one point, she's she's like, and she'll swoop in and cover it all up. And the, what's the point of all this then? And it's easy to feel that way about Kate's adventures in L.A. Because at the end, she doesn't really save very many people. She's not able to help, you know, she wasn't able to get all the orchids. She doesn't really take down Madame Mask. Um, she kind of does. He's still, st- the the guy is still stuck in this, you know, cat food buying loop of hell. And, you know, you just kind of feel like nothing really got accomplished. The this uh i'm blanking on the guy's name the the singer he doesn't ever get to complete his album he got to play but he doesn't and kate ends with a broken nose and is leaving and she now knows that her dad is basically a supervillain. yeah which she did suspected mm-hmm. oh yeah but at the same time she is she has grown through this adventure and us reading it you know the yeah. adventure itself is worth the journey and even though it in the end it doesn't feel like anything was necessarily accomplished it's still she's changed we've changed with her and you know we got a good laugh out of it well i think so i the last thing you said i feel so i so strongly agree because what what the story is is um i i referenced this in the last episode too but the beginning of kate's uh, uh first appearance in the young avengers comic which came around this time mm-hmm. by kieran gillan and jamie mckelvey yes all and when she says being a superhero is great, everyone should try it. Yes. And I feel like it, when, you know, you're supposed to, the response to that's supposed to be like, well, what happens when, like, the villains start doing villainous shit and I can't, you know, I'm not Thor, I can't uh, go toe-to-toe with a villain like that. And what happens when you um, you fail and people get hurt and you do your best and it wasn't good enough? And what's cool about this is Kate's answer is, you, you try again. <laughs> Like, um, it's, that's what makes her heroic is that, uh, she, uh, does all she can until she gets to her, like, human limitations, and then she doesn't let it totally, like, shatter her. She goes on to the next thing and she tries her best. Yeah. And that's her superpower. And that's, like, and that's beautiful because this whole thing was about, like, uh, Kate trying to learn who she was because she was a young woman and, uh, her being cut off from her dad and from Clint and her whole support structure. And then she comes back knowing that she, um, won't ever give up. Mm Mm-hmm. Just like Spider-Man. Yeah. Even if everything kind of crumbles around her, she's she's determined to continue doing what she's doing because she believes in it and she thinks that it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. So the next issue is the sign language issue. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then, so that's 19. We've got three issues to go. Yeah. So what do you want to say about at number 19? So at this point in the Hawkeye series, like, you know that um, issues are going to have, like, a gimmick or something that's going to be, like, a, an artistic experiment that's got to do with the theme of the issue. And so this issue, it uh, the theme is deafness because Clint has his eardrums pierced and he is recently deaf. Mm. Can I tell you, actually, I misread something until this reading of the comic that I never noticed, which is... I always thought that uh, Kazu the clown shot, um, tried to shoot Clint and Barney, and only and only Barney got hit, mm-hmm. and that it was the uh, the gunshot going off right next to his head that deafened him. I never noticed that he got stabbed in that part. I thought his eardrums were literally rupturing because guns were too loud. Oh wow! And I always thought had thought that was cool because um, you know Spider Man's eardrums wouldn't rupture because someone's shooting at him. Spider Man would just do a backflip. <laughs> 
and he's got you know spider healing powers or whatever. Yeah, he's he's more uh, he's got more uh, stamina and like endurance and fortitude. All the saving throws. But yeah, it's about um, Clint dealing with being deaf now. And um, a lot of the issue is written in sign language. There's just, like, panels of people uh, spelling things out and doing words in sign language, which um, uh, I don't speak. I have a bunch of people in my orbit who know ASL, and some of them for work and study reasons. Mm. But I tragically don't speak it. But also, paired next to the AHA art, it's really effective at conveying the emotions in the characters. While also, um, you really feel the absence of being able to, quote-unquote, hear the words. Yeah. And what's also, I think, kind of interesting is Fraction opens the issue with just this one flashback page. Kind of showing that this is not the first time that he has been temporary, that he had been temporarily deafened. Uh, and now it is a more permanent part of his life. So I know I'm usually the continuity person on this show, but do you remember, is this a new thing? Was uh, Is this Fraction calling back to, because I feel, it feels like that, to like an old story where he had mentioned that or something? This is the extent of the Hawkeye I've read. This yeah, and a little bit past know, it. I don't know. It feels so natural in his backstory, though. It's just like it really, um, it feels like Fraction remembers some like offhanded piece of trivia. I yeah. guess also, like, Hawkeye, he's got eye in his name, which helps him shoot arrows, and his eyes are sort of super, because he's got such good aim, mm-hmm. that um, that this handicap makes him rely on his powers a little bit more in a daredevil kind of way, which is something that I like, but it's not to everyone's taste. Mm, for sure. I really love this issue. Oh, the, yeah, fantastic issue. And I really like... Um, Clint and Barney are so thrust together that they're really supporting each other, even though you get the feeling that they don't like each other. Yeah, yeah. But they're brothers, and they support each other, and then they punch each other in the face. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. The tiny, the, the kid, kid Barney just drinking out of the flask. Not a, not a flask, just like a straight bottle. Oh, yeah. Like a whiskey bottle. Right out bottle. of the bottle, yeah. It's pretty sad, actually, to see. He's like, what, 11? Yeah, childhood alcoholism is really sad to see yeah i'm trying to think where in this you know where to focus in in this issue Uh, i guess the the nice focus of this is we get to see barney kind of teaming not teaming up but uh regaling Uh, integrating himself yeah into the community that clint's been building around his building where he fits in he likes being a caretaker for these people too he wants to be their friend he wants to babysit their kids he wants to cook and eat meals with them Mm mm-hmm it's, and it's really bittersweet because there's been a lot of tragedy, a lot of just like really human tragedy. His friend got murdered. He got injured and it's going to change his life. But while that's happening, it's kind of helping him reconnect with his brother. And it's kind of um, his and his and his community is coming together around this. Mm-hmm. And it feels nice, despite it being very sad and about loss. Yeah, I think Bar- Barney connecting with Simone is really nice and a good setup for what's to come. And the it, the name of the issue getting at the end being in Clint's shadow the stuff what don't get spoke so I I was trying to figure out I think that might be a line from Rio Bravo which I haven't seen since I was a teenager it probably is um what do you know about Rio Bravo Elias you're not you're not a, a, a movie trivia guy no I I know very I I don't know anything about it really uh, do you know who Howard Hawks is the name is familiar but no uh, he was a director in, um, like, uh, from, active from, like, the 30s to the 50s. Ah. 
I'm just looking at it. Yeah, that's about it. And um, one of the first, like, great American film directors that a lot of more famous directors are really obsessed with his work. Mm-hmm. And what's cool about Howard Hawks' career to me is oh. he was, like, you look over his filmography, it's like he's trying to make one movie in every genre. He has a sci-fi movie, he has a gangster movie, he does comedies, he does dramas, he does noir, he does, and so Rio Bravo is the Howard Hawks Western. Mm. It's very, you know, it's a Western. It's got Western stuff going on in, in it, but it's very, um, like, it doesn't feel like John Wayne or Clint Eastwood movies. It feels like uh, its own weird, when you watch it, you feel like you're watching like this parallel universe where, like, Westerns could have been, like, more Roy Rogers. <laughs> huh. Interesting. Um, and it makes sense to me that um, that Fraction would love this movie, and it makes sense to me that he would make Hawkeye love this movie. For sure. And I guess, and obviously thematically it's connected, it's, a, you know, about a one sad, washed-up man standing against injustice. Mm. And, I mean, the quote is is both evocative in the way it is written and in what is being written. Like, yeah. both literally the stuff that's not getting spoken, but also the unspoken things between Clint and Barney and Clint and Jess and Clint and the others and then Barney and, and the people at the apartment building... All good stuff. And that brings us into the finale. So take us into the finale, Elias. The finale. We've got, we've reached a two-parter. Now, the first issue, for some reason, Raul Allen does not get any credits in any of the regular credits. But on the issue credit, he is credited here as um, one of the artists. And I'm guessing he assisted, and you can really tell, interestingly, on the page that he is credited on, that this is definitely a Raul Allen page. And if not drawn in layout, he loves this kind of stuff. I'm not as familiar with his work. Uh, tell me about him. Raul Allen, he is always, oh, who is he always paired Is there something up with? specific I would know him from? He did a, the Secret Warriors Valiant series. What was the name of that one? With uh, He drew the most recent Dune graphic novel. Um mm-hmm. He's done some Wonder Woman issues. I'm trying to find the name of the um of that issue. He's he did that, some cool, I think Immortal Iron Fist. Uh Yeah, no that's cool. I like it when you um when you suddenly realize that you've liked this person all along. Yeah. He it's with um Patricia Martin. They they frequently collaborate together and their art is beautiful. I love it. It it's very much like uh David Aha, very similar in terms of the way it is done. And I think he collaborated with Aha on Immortal Iron Fist number 9. That's the one Marvel credit that shows up under Raul Allen's name. So the two must know each other and be friends outside of the the comics sphere. Sure. You love to see it. Yeah, but he's not really credited specifically as what he's doing here. So I could not tell you what he did. It's just with Raul Allen. Yes. But you're noticing a little change in the art. Like the silhouette, maybe he's doing the silhouettes because there's so many of them and so many little tiny panels. Mm -hmm. And uh, the color palette has really shifted to this Western uh, panel too, where like uh, everything is like Adobe red and like sand yellow. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. We're having a, a Western standoff. And, you know, when the when the cars are driving up, it's a whole bunch of tiny panels, and then there's just red, red, nothing, and then a pinpoint of light, kind of like the, uh, you know, horses are approaching through the darkness as the sun rises. Yeah, you're totally right. Yeah. I didn't realize how Western this felt until you mentioned it. I'm like, yeah, that is what it feels like. 
It's like the last stand at at before before dawn. Yeah, well, I've I've read the first half of this like nine hundred times, and I've read the second half of this a couple of times, and um, that's always what sticks with me is how much this feels like the uh, last beats of a western. <laughs> And how um, all these subtle touches that are, like, everything we've been describing um, makes New York, this recent New York, feel like the Wild West. And it's hard, I feel like it's hard to have both of those vibes going at once, but they really pull it off. Yeah, for sure. And it ends up being one of those, like, fun Home Alone-type sieges where, like, all of your friends that you've been meeting this entire time all come in and get to have, like, a cool move using garbage and household objects to (laughs) fight off the bad guys. Yeah. Like the end of Skyfall. But because this is Hawkeye... Nothing can go right, and you know they're they're successful at defending the, the place for most of it. But then Hawkeye gets a bat to the face from an old lady, whose name we never get. Um, and I I just want to point out Iliopolis's lettering here because it is terrifying in how yeah well it the letters look like they're made of the blood flying out of his face. Yeah, it is. I guess just one more example of why why this is such a well respected comic. Yeah, every little, all of these little touches that I'm discovering on the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, issue twenty twenty one ends. I cannot imagine what this cliffhanger would have felt like when it first came out, because you know he's beat up, he's brought to the the roof. You you know it's completely gone into that the red and yellow. Like we kind of got some of the regular coloring when they were triumphant and winning and and but now it's just all almost all red and orange barney gets stabbed he, we get one last callback to the the guess what chicken butt but it doesn't get resolved and then you're crying because that's how good this is and hawkeye just is cradling barney he looks up and then we get this huge panel of lucky holding an arrow and then the issue holding, ends. Uh, well looks like the boomerang arrow <laughs> yes it is the boomerang arrow and then the issue ends. Yeah, and what a ah uh, whatever I've said this a million. Just like this is a good comic, Elias. This is good. I was gonna say, what was you were reading reading this as it came out, right? No. So at this point, I hadn't read Hawkeye in so long that I didn't get these until like a maybe a year after they came out, or so, or six months after they came out in this hardcover. That's where I first read th- these last couple issues. Oh, interesting. Because I was like, I want to read all of Hawkeye before I read this ending again. Wasn't there like a two year wait between Hawkeye number? 21 and 22 at this point i had already fallen off the book because the delay between issues was a couple months and i was struggling with that and then there was like a two-year delay yeah let's and i was like i'm gonna and i never wanted to read those issues i had missed i'm like oh i should go and read those comics i missed six months ago but then i was like i should wait until it's finished (laughs) so issue 21 came out february 2015 uh and issue it was like a like a five to six month delay it was july 2015 was issue um that issue, the, whose name I forget. <laughs> issue twenty-two. There we go. But issue twenty-two. Issue twenty-two. Oh my god! It was it was a year between issue nineteen and issue twenty. God. Yeah. Or I'm sorry. It was it was a year between that and the end. It was like six months between every issue. Yeah, and at that point, I, I that that's tough for me as a comics reader, and that yeah. used that used to happen a lot, and it still happens. Quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, it does. This era of Marvel, I feel like Marvel had really bad labor practice. I mean, not that they all ever have great labor practices, but I feel like the it was like a tough office to work in in the early 2010s. Mm. 
they were smelling that movie money and the Disney acquisition, and I feel like they were really driving their creators really hard. Yeah, kind of like how Valiant has been feeling recently. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and this this book, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears went into books around this time. Mm-hmm. Issue twenty-two, the end of the Hawkeye era, brings back Penny. Yeah, it brings back everybody. Actually, yeah, it's kind of the the triumphant return. I don't know what Hawkeye's shirt says. It's in Russian. I'm guessing it says dog. I'm guessing it says Laika. Ah, uh, that would do it. Yes. Oh, because it's a spaceship, um, but it looks like an arrow. Yeah, it looks like an arrow, but there's a dog in the spaceship. I think it's a Laika shirt. Yeah. It's cool. It is cool. We get. I, I do love how the mix of coloring continues, but I think that might also just be because there's an explosion, and explosions tend to be yellow in this comic. Mm-hmm. But I don't know what else to say about this ending. It's just the wrapping up of all the themes. Yeah, it's they're still fun to be had, like, uh, mostly in the artwork. I guess that what happens here is this book, has, they've been creatively constipated for so long that Fraction realizes that the best asset he has is to step the hell out of the way and let the art finish the story. And so it's like a very physical story with sparse dialogue where um, the characters are like having their final physical conflict. And Hawkeye is going against the tracksuit mafia and going up against uh, Kazu the clown who's got that really nifty little uh, sleeve gun hmm. that like you're like, yeah, in the Marvel Universe, uh, I bet. Mm-hmm. And it does the same that, you know, the one, two, but instead of it being for the sign language, it's for the mechanics of this, the gun, which is a nice... Chris Ware touch. Mm-hmm. And then we get a callback um, to the flinging of the coin from issue one. Yeah, there, there's a lot of callbacks all through here. There was a, that callback. There was a him saying buildings not for sale, which he said to them before. <laughs> was a Hawkeye really like. Uh, there's him uh, using the cables that are all tangled up. Mm-hmm. It's just like uh, every little uh, element uh, makes a fun comeback and pays off in some way because this is a good creative team and a good comic. It is. Um. And it ends, I guess, like it has to. Uh, it doesn't really have a strong catharsis of conclusion at the end. No, not really. But it, it wraps enough up. Like, Penny is, is kind of shown off uh, after disappearing for a while. Um, Clint, probably because they have to set it back up for whatever was going on in the other books, ends up back together with um, Spider-Woman. I think I think that's what happens. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we get just basically a, a nice kind of quiet resolution with also additional setup for potential next arc where all of the, the villains in New York are like, man, the Hawkeyes, they suck. And, uh, Kate's dad's at the meeting and he condemns her to death. Yeah. Which is pretty terrible. Yeah. It was pretty terrible because again, uh, this is like as I was he. This is a a real step up for his villainy. Mm. He hadn't been a real murdery villain yet. No, yeah. And we then we get the resolution for Barney. What was he? What was his whole goal? And we don't. I don't really know if this was what he intended to do from the start. But in the end, he ran away with Simone and you know all of the money that supposedly Clint owed him. I don't... That, I think, was before this series. Oh, yeah. One would assume that Clint owes a lot of people money. This is true. Um, so, And it's kind of a villain move. It's kind of a dick move. And, like, Clint's mad. But, like, how could you be mad if he's taking care of the 
this one family that struggled for so long. Well, so he's also mad because um, it kind of breaks up that community he's been building. His brother yes. was fitting in really nicely, but now he's gone and Simone's gone and the kids are gone. And I think Clint just feels a little abandoned. Yeah. And um, and he hangs up the phone and uh, we get a zoom in on his hearing aids, which is one of the reasons why a lot of writers decide to forget about his disability. Mm. And then they're just like a silent couple of um, pages of Clint and Kate just shooting arrows together. It's all artwork. And the only words are the credits of the creators of the series as like a closing credits to this really cinematic, long running masterpiece of a series. And the best part, the credits change. It used to be a Clint Barton comic book. And now it's a Clint Barton, Kate Bishop comic book. What I think was also one really great touch to end it on, neither of the arrows hit home on panel. We just have yeah. to assume that they do. Yeah, they either did afterwards or we they missed completely. I got one last thing I want to say. I mean, Hawkeye, classic book. If you haven't read it, you should. It was like a joy to experience again. It's a book you can go back to over and over and over again. I don't like rereading books all that often. I mean, I do, especially mm -hmm. when I really like it. But this is something that every time I go back... Um, I can, you know, read and reread and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, I, I loved rereading this. Um, I loved rereading this and thinking about what the world in which it was written and the world that we have now. Mm -hmm. I got one last thing I want to say about Hawkeye, and then I'm ready to talk about our next book club. Okay. And that's, uh, so the back of my hardcover has the David Aha issue playlists. Do you have those? No. Because I've got just the basic trades. Uh, that was in the letters pages of the issues. Is David Aha would say what music he drew the art to. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and I remember them putting this on the internet at one point, too, and it's in my hardcover. It's mostly jazz stuff. Dizzy Gillespie, <laughs> Lalo Schifrin, Herbie Hancock, Miles Davis. Um, but, like, a little bit of, like, classical for scenes with the bad guys. Mother of Invention. Yeah, and then, like, weird, like, proggy dad rock, I guess. <laughs> Tom Waits. Okay. Um, it's a cool playlist, and it's like a real... It's it's not... Kieran Gillen playlists tend to be very wide-ranging and draw from a lot of different places, but this is like a... It's as limited as his the color palette hmm. of the tone of the music. And um, the improvisational jazz, like, really, I thought, captures um, what's so beautiful about the artwork. Hmm. That's pretty rad. And that's a wrap on Hawkeye. We've done it. We made it. It was good. I that was a lot of comics, Elias. Maybe next time we could read like something a little shorter, like no more than say three or four issues. Yeah, why don't we do that? You know, let's, we can spin the wheel, figure it out. Um, but our listeners probably want to know what it is so they can get a jump on it. So we will be reading the mini series that we've kind of been talking about on and off for like basically the entire time we've been doing this. Taskmaster and the trade is called Unthinkable uh, from 2010. Not to be confused with the newer one or the older one from 2002 um, by Fred Van Lenti and the whole team. I had the credits open and I lost it. Yeah, <laughs> with Fred Van Lenti's um, Taskmaster, it's from 20 2010. It's one of my all-time favorite Marvel comics. It's four issues. It's on Marvel Unlimited, or maybe it's at your local library. Or you're like me and you bought the trade of this the second it went for sale. <laughs> so uh, not next episode, but the one after that, we will be discussing it. And it, I'm sure we'll, I have, I'll have a million things to say about Taskmaster. He is one of my favorite Marvel characters. But in the meantime, Elias, uh, where can folks find you if they just crave more Elias? They can find me on Twitter at Quetzalish. That's Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. I took on this superhero name in honor of the first Quetzalish, uh, who has now become Quetzalmore. 
Uh, and you can find me also writing on at multiversitycomics.com. Got a lot of different articles going on at once, so much so that it's a little overwhelming. <laughs> to yeah, be dude, you, you take on a lot, my friend. But yeah, it's fun. I enjoy it. I will be, God help me, I will hopefully be done with Riverdale by the time this goes live, but they keep adding break weeks in between, so I have no idea. Wow, it sounds like trying to read Hawkeye while it's coming out. <laughs> Where can they find you on the larger interwebs, Jaina? Folks can find me on Twitter at rambling underscore moose. And you can also find me on multiversitycomics.com. It's a pretty great website. And I write mostly about X-Men there. And I've been writing about Attack on Titan. And I'm going to be writing about a really cool comic uh, in a couple of months. So stay tuned. And that's me on the internet right now. Nice and pared down. Yeah, I'm having a... I'm trying to work on me this summer. Um, but until then, stay unthinkable. Excelsior. <laughs>